0: You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes as Senior Minister Adam Hale continues our sermon series on the Book of Judges. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. In the second part of our series, we're going to be looking at the Book of Judges. If you were here last week, we started this series, and I told you that you can log into Right Now Media if you're using that. And search uh, Judges, or click on the Glendale Christian Church Library. That's uh, there under the Libraries tab, and and there's a series there called Judges, and it will be it's by J.D. Greer, and it will be a great supplement to what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, and maybe uh, go a little bit more in depth as we as the Book of Judges is is you know several chapters long. And we only have uh, so many weeks we can talk about this. In fact, next week we'll be uh, wrapping up our series through the Book of Judges, and so. Um, So you can look to Right Now Media to to get a little more insight on what's going on in the Old Testament. But last week, we we saw at the beginning of this series, we just got through the first uh, three chapters, and we saw in the first two chapters this vacuum that is left. Uh, when Joshua dies, this uh, identity crisis that the people face, that there is no leader there, and everybody did what was right in their own minds, and, and there was no clear leader to point them in the right direction to bring them back to repentance, and so they didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do, the Israelites, that is. And so there's this, this kind of identity uh, vacuum that, that is there when Joshua dies. And then we saw in chapter 3 the story of Ehud, one of the first judges that God would raise up, to deliver the Israelite people from their enemies, and we call Ehud the left-handed king slayer. And so today we're going to be in Judges chapter 6, so if you want to flip over there in your Bibles, we're going to be talking about a guy who at first glance might seem like a, a very unlikely uh, leader, who might seem like a very unlikely ruler or judge, and his name is Gideon. Now you might be familiar with Gideon, Uh, most of you at least have heard the name Gideon because at some point probably when you were in the fourth grade most likely somebody came to your school and they were called Gideons and they gave you a copy of the New Testament. Um, If you go to a hotel you can open up the nightstand and there's typically a Bible there and it's been placed there by the Gideons and Gideon International, well this is who that group is named after and so we're going to look at his story, Gideon. And I want to prop his story up as we begin to walk through some of his story with you thinking about this question. The question is this, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of anything? Um, I'm just guessing, but most of us in this room are probably afraid of something. And I say that because according to livingscience.com, 19.2 million American adults have a specific phobia. Now, when I say they have a phobia, I'm not talking about they're a little timid about something or there's they're something that they just don't really like. I'm talking about a phobia, full-on, fear-inducing, panic-stricken, anxiety-attack type fear. 19.2 million American adults have some sort of fear like this. Now I'll tell you I don't think that I fall into that category of course not right we always think that you're talking about somebody else right I don't think that I fall into that category because I'm you know big bad macho preacher man and but I will tell you there is one thing that does creep me out more than anything else clowns I do not like clowns I don't know I don't know when that started where it came from but clowns they just they just creep me out and so if you if if you want to get me to move away from you dress up like a clown I I will not come near you I promise last year Christy and I went with some friends down to Bonneville down to the the hill of terror their haunted house experience and Christy and I went down there and we'd gone a couple times and and if you're not familiar with what that is it is a a haunted house type experience but it's spread out over somebody's farm over several acres and uh, when you get there you go through a barn and they try to scare you there and it's it's not really all that bad but then they they take you on a hayride they take you through a hayride hayride on this wooded area and there are lots of clowns in this wooded area and now this year one of the things that we really liked about the hayride was that they gave you you could on the on the wagon they had equipped it with paintball guns and for a small fee you could shoot paintballs at the clowns as you were going through the forest guess who Paid the extra five dollars to do that. So, uh, once you get through the wooded area, the, the wagon ride, they drop you off in a clearing and it's basically a self guided tour through the rest of this farm. And along, this, along the way, you will go through several barns and buildings and trailers, and they all have different things in there designed to scare you. Some are gory, and people will jump out and try to scare you and chase you with chainsaws, and none of that stuff really bothers me. But there's one trailer that they make you go through and it is full of clowns and when we walked into that I I told Chris I said we got to we got to move through this because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hit one of them I'm gonna hurt one of them we've got to get through this so last year as we were I knew that was coming and so it, it didn't bother me as bad because I knew it was coming but there was an opportunity for us to for me to to extract a little revenge to get even uh, we were approaching one barn, and we could see uh, from the outside just all kinds of strobe lights going off in in the barn. And so I kind of turned to Christian and said, "You know, with with your epilepsy, this is probably not a good thing for you to go in. We should just walk around." And she agreed. And so we got to the to the entrance, and the guy tried to funnel us through. And we told him what we were doing, and he said, "Okay, yeah, just go around." And so we walked along the back side of this barn. Now nobody's back there. There's nothing back there. And you can see the end of the barn, and I noticed that at the end of the barn there was a clown there, and he was opening up the back doors, people were coming out, and he was scaring people as, as they were coming out. I thought, here's my moment, here's my chance. And so I turned to Chris and said, just be real quiet. And so I walked as quietly as I could along the backside of this barn, got right up next to this clown, right behind him, and just leaned in and whispered in his ear, Boo. Well, he jumped and screamed and took off running. I thought, ha-ha, it's not so funny now, is it? But it was funny, and everybody thought so. He didn't think so, but everybody else thought it was really fun. But clowns, they, they, they kind of creep me out a little bit. According to the website that I mentioned, there they give uh, the top ten phobias. Here it is. The, number ten is the dentist. Anybody else afraid of the dentist? I don't, I'm not necessarily afraid of the dentist, but I hate going to the dentist, so... I don't know if that counts. Number nine, dogs. People are afraid of man's best friend. Number eight, flying. People are either afraid that the plane will crash or it's just a heightened sense of claustrophobia being on a, on a in a tight space for a, an extended period of time. Number seven, people are scared of severe weather. Thunder and lightning uh, are what people are scared of even though you have like a one in 700,000 uh, chance of being struck by lightning. This is this is something that people are afraid of. number six, the dark. Uh, this is one that usually starts in childhood, but uh, oftentimes people don 't outgrow it and it 's not so much that people are afraid of the dark itself it 's the unknown of what might be in the dark. Number five is, is heights now, and I say i don 't have a phobia, but if there's one on this list that would get me, this would be the one. Uh, I always say that there 's a reason God made me short, um, so i don 't have to be in tall places and uh, and and really, when I get in areas where there's a lot of height involved, I, I do get kind of nervous and anxious. When we were on a vacation recently, Christy wanted to go uh, cliff jumping, and so we're at this at Rick's cafe, and there's a this cliff that's about fifty feet above the ocean and you can jump off the cliff and we're walking around and I just it it made me nervous just walking around this cliff and looking over there's no guardrails there's nothing to keep anybody from just falling off the cliff and she jumped and she asked me if I was going to do it and I said no um, somebody ought to be alive to raise our children and so um, I said I'm going to call a life insurance agent and make sure you're up up you know, your premiums are up, and then I might push, but no, not really. Uh, and so, but it, it got to the point for me that I had to actually leave and go outside uh, the area. I, cu- I couldn't stand around. There were just too many people walking around this cliff, and it made me, it made me pretty nervous. Number four, other people. People are afraid of other people. This, um, more specifically, people are afraid of having to do something in front of people, uh, specifically public speaking. That's the number one fear that people have to do in front uh, of getting up in front of people is to speak in front of. But it's not just limited to that. It might be even just being in a crowded restaurant and having to eat something in front of people that, that uh, freaks people out. Number three, scary spaces. More specifically, crowded uh, type places like elevators or bridges or, or even crowded sports stadiums. Those are, are places that uh, scare people. Number two, and this one I think is the most ridiculous one of all, but um, I know lots of people are scared of this, and it's spiders. Anybody scared of spiders? Yeah, lots of people in this room. Now, all right, and the reason I say this is is ridiculous because you are like seven million times larger than any spider you will come into contact with. Step on it, okay? Step on it. It'll be okay. I promise you, you can do it. Uh, my wife, who I love dearly, and I think is as fearless a person as I know, she's not scared of spiders, but little crickets. She's scared to death of them. If there's a cricket in our house, you better bet that I'm going to have to get up and go step on it. So just step on it. And she said, no, they'll, they'll jump on you. Well, not if you step fast enough. <laughs> and the number one, the number one fear that people have, any guesses? Snakes. Snakes. Snakes is number one. They snakes induce more fear into more people than anything else. And so I'm just guessing, but even if I, if I didn't name what it is that you might be afraid of or fearful of, chances are there's something that you are afraid of. For Gideon and the Israelite people, it was a group of people. We meet Gideon in, in Judges chapter 6, and here's what the Scriptures say. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midians for, several, for seven years. Now, remember, we talked last week about the Israelites. They lived in this cycle. They would, they would uh, do right among the, uh, uh, as far as the Lord was concerned, and so there would be peace. And then they would have a time of peace, and after that time of peace, they would get bored. And so they would do evil in the sight of the Lord, and so God would punish them. And that was usually uh, by a a foreign nation. And so this foreign nation would come in and and overtake them, and they would get tired of this foreign nation and all the oppression that was taking place there. And so they would cry out to God, and God would, would hear their cries, and so he would raise up a judge to deliver them from the people. So they're back in this cycle. They've had peace for a little while. And now they're back, they've gotten bored with that, and so they're doing evil in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord has handed them over to the Midianites for punishment. It says the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, the caves, and the strongholds. It goes on in the next couple of verses to say how ruthless they were, that they would come in out of the hills and they would and they would just destroy their fields and and their crops, and basically to the point where they would just try to starve the Israelites to death. And so when the Israelites got tired of starving. They did what they always did. They cried out to God and they asked God for help, and God did what he always does. He heard, he heard the cries of his people, and so he, he sends an angel of the Lord to appear to Gideon, who he's going to raise up as a judge. And so we get to verses 11 and 12, and this is what it says. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Orpha, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, "Mighty hero, the Lord is with you." Now, there's some humor in this, in these two verses that we might miss if we're not careful. We could easily overlook this. What's it say? Gideon is doing? He's he's threshing wheat. Now, we live in an agricultural community, and maybe some of you have even threshed wheat or thrashed wheat however you want to say it but if you have done that you know the best way to do that right you take your sickle and you throw it up in the air and you let the wind catch it and blow it blow the chaff and what you have left is the grain right so you one would think that the the most advantageous place to do this would be in the middle of a field right in the middle of your grain field where does it say Gideon was thrashing wheat at? in a wine press. Now, understand what a wine press is. A wine press was a, was a pit that was underneath the ground. So Gideon is taking his sickle and he's throwing the wheat up in the air, but there's no wind that, because they're underground. He's underground. There's no wind to come through and catch the chaff and blow it away. This is an exercise in futility. Gideon is making no progress doing this. But why does it say that Gideon was doing this? because he was scared of the Midianites. He was afraid that the Midianites would see what he was doing and they would come down and they would take his grain or worse, they would do something to him. Gideon was scared. And the angel of the Lord shows up and what does the angel call Gideon? He says, a mighty hero. Now, does Gideon really look like a mighty hero in the bottom of a wine press, threshing wheat because he's afraid of a group of people? No, not at all. What he looks like is a coward. So was the angel wrong? Did the angel uh, get confused from where God instructed him to go? Did did the angel mean to show up and talk to another Israelite? Did the angel get the wrong person? Well, no, not at all. The angel wasn't wrong, and and this is the first thing that I want us to see this morning, is, is that God doesn't see us for how we are or even how we perceive ourselves, but God sees us for what we can be. When, when the angel of the Lord said, mighty hero, God is with you, he wasn't talking about Gideon's current state. At, the, at that point in time, Gideon was not a mighty hero. He was talking about to what God had called him to be, what God was going to make him into, because God sees us for what we can be, for the, the potential that we have, not necessarily what we currently are. Gideon didn't look like a mighty man of valor here. He certainly didn't look like a hero. But God's view of Gideon was not bound by, by Gideon's uh, uh, reality or by Gideon's actions. Gideon may have been under the shadow of Midian, but God was not. God was not bound by, by a group of people who did not uh, love him or, or trust him. God instead is able to see beyond the exterior of, of ourselves and, and was able to see beyond the exterior of Gideon, even to call out something in Gideon that, that Gideon probably didn't even realize he had within him. Priscilla Shire says that... Uh, Gideon wasn't a scared farmer. Not really. She says that's how he was behaving, but but that's not who he was. She says God's perspective of, of us is often so unbelievable, so foreign to our own belief system and conduct, that it can be like a bolt of lightning striking our souls. It jolts us away from the misplaced shadows of our experience into the truth of God's reality. In Paul... In the New Testament, Paul confirms and affirms this for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he writes, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Don't miss what Paul has said there. He said, Before Christ came, your, your present condition was a sinner. But God didn't send His Son to die for you so that you would remain a sinner. He didn't send His Son to die for you for what you, what you could might be. He sent your, His Son to die for us for what we could be, and that's His children. God has called us all to be His children, children of the Father. That's who we are. That's what God has called us to be, not, not sinners. Yeah, that's what we were. When, when Christ, before Christ came, that's what we were. We were sinners with no hope. But God saw us for what we could be, His children. First John 3 1 says, See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children. And that is what we are. It may not be how we always act. It may not even be what we believe about ourselves. But the more important view is how God views us. That's more important than how we view ourselves. And listen to me on this. Some of you in this room right now, you have some people in your life that don't think very highly of you. They don't speak very highly of you. They, they don't view you very favor, favorably. And some of you have begin, begun to wear labels that, that they have given you. They, they, they have said for so long, you're this and you're that, and you've begun to wear that label. You've begun to believe that. You, your actions have begun to conform to the ways that other people view you. I'm just going to tell you, that's got to stop. Let that stop today. The opinion of others, the labels that others give you, and and young people, teenagers, middle school, high schoolers, college age, you all especially listen to me on this because you all maybe deal with this more than anybody else. The the view, the opinion of other people, what they think of you, it does not matter. It has no bearing on who you are. Who you are is a child of God. That's who God says you are, and it's His opinion that matters. matters. He paid far too great of a price for you to be anything other than what he has called you to be. And that's his child. Gideon was scared in a wine press. But God said, you're a mighty hero. God doesn't see you for what you currently are or what you currently might be. But for what you can be through him. So God tells Gideon, go cut down these Asherah poles. God and uh, Gideon and this angel have a conversation and Gideon fixes him some, uh, a meal and realizes that it is an angel of the Lord that has appeared to him and the angel says, you're going to go cut down so these Asherah poles that have been built to worship Baal. You need to get rid of these. If, if we're going to deliver your people uh, from the Midianites, we've got to get rid of this idol worship. So go cut them down. And Gideon, knowing that he has spoken with an angel, still not uh, all that confident still fearful of what uh, could happen. And so Gideon, even, even though he, he's talked to an angel and the angel has given him this instruction, he says, I, I'm, I'm still a little afraid. And so I'm going to do what you told me to do, God. God, you've told me to go cut these Asherah poles down. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to wait till it's nighttime so that nobody sees what's going on. And so at night, nightfall comes, and he gets a couple of his servants, and they go and they cut down these Asherah poles that have been built for Baal worship. And then the next morning comes and it doesn't take long for people around town to see what's happened, that these Asherah poles have been cut down, these temples for Baal have been uh, destroyed, and people get to talk and people get to stirring around and they want to know what happened and and who's responsible for this. And it doesn't take long for it to come out that Gideon is the one responsible for it. And so the people, uh, this community of people who are still very much entrenched in this idol worship, They come to Joash, Gideon's father, and they said, Joash, uh, we understand it's your son that did this. We understand that Gideon is the one responsible for this, so bring him here because we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. This is what he did was was not right. We're going to kill him. And so Joash, uh, who is, you know, like I said, he's Gideon's dad. Obviously, he doesn't want somebody to kill his son, but remember, he's also entrenched in this idol worship and so he comes up with a plan he says you know if if baal is really a god then why don't we let baal defend himself because if if he's a real god i mean any other real god if if somebody was to do this to their temples they would they would answer for themselves they would defend themselves that person would be uh, struck down so if baal's a real god why don't why don't we just let baal defend himself and so the people, uh, people are okay with that. and They say, all right, Baal, you, you can defend yourself. And what happens? Nothing. Because that's what their God was capable of. Nothing. And so, because nothing happens, the people actually, they begin to give Gideon a nickname or another name, and they call him Jerobel, which, means, uh, which mean, basically means that he defeated Baal. So now Gideon has... He's had an angel of the Lord appear to him. God has given him very specific instructions. An angry mob wanted to kill him, and God protected him through that. And now people are even calling him this, this God-defeater, this defeater of Baal, and they're, they're kind of propping him, propping him up, giving him uh, some influence, uh, uh, a, a position of influence. Which leads me to the next thing that I want us to see, is that when you act on what God has called you to do, when you are obedient to what God has called you to do, people will take notice. It didn't take long for the people to realize that their, their Asherah poles, their bell temples had been destroyed. It didn't take people long to notice that. And when, when Gideon did what was right, people took notice. And when you will do what is right, when you will do what God has called you to do, people will take notice. Now listen to me on this. I don't know what it is that God has called you to do. I don't know specifically in your, in your own personal situation what it is that God has called you to do. But I do know this, that God has called you to something and when you begin to act on that, when you begin to be obedient to God in that, people will take notice. People will, will, will take notice because it's not natural. It's not natural for people to do things, to, to sacrifice things for, for others or for a God. It's not, that's not a natural thing. We are naturally selfish people, right? We're naturally, we, we look out for number one, we look out for ourselves. But when we follow God, When we are obedient to God's calling, it it can only lead us to put others first. It can only lead us to do things for other people. And so people get curious about that because it's not natural. And when people get curious, they begin to ask questions. And when they ask questions, that will be your opportunity to share the gospel with them, to to share what it is that God has called you to do, to share what it is that God has called you, and that's a child of, of His. We see this play out in the New Testament. When you look at the New Testament, the first century church, it thrived. But it should have never made it out of the first century. When you think about the, the, uh, the setting of the first century and this church, this new movement, it should have never made it out of the first century. It, it was against the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful empires in the world that the world has ever known. And they were a, uh, an enemy of the church. And yet, here we are. Some 2,000 years later, not only a part of the church, but still talking about what they did all those centuries ago. The, the first century church thrived because they were obedient to God. People took notice and it spread. When Stephen was stoned and, 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 and was persecuted, it says that the people scattered and they went out. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't stop being the church. When the, when the Christians scattered, uh, to the other parts of Europe, guess what they did? They were still the church there. They were still obedient to what God called them to do, and as a result, the church spread. The church grew. People took notice of what they were doing, and it wasn't natural. And it got their curiosity. And when they when they got curious about it, they began to ask questions. And the first century church told them about this Jesus who loved him so much that he would leave heaven, he would die for their sins, and that he would be raised from the dead. People will take notice. When you begin to obey what God is calling you to do, there will be people who, who are immediately aware of it. Some will come out to support you in this, some will come out to encourage you in it, and some won't. Some will be opposition, but you can rest assured that people will take notice when when you are obedient to what God is calling you to do. And your obedience is a testimony to who God is and what God has already done. So we see Gideon here. God is is priming Gideon to be this mighty hero. And even though Gideon has talked with an angel, he has seen how God has protected him from this angry mob, he's now given him a position of influence Gideon still is, isn't quite sure. In fact, Gideon's still afraid. In fact, Judges chapter 6, verse 36, it tells us, Then Gideon said to God, If you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, in other words, if you're sure it's me and not somebody else, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning but the ground is dry, then I, I will know that you're going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. Gideon after all that he's seen, after all that has happened so far, still isn't sure, and has to ask God for confirmation. And God confirms so much that that it says that Gideon uh, would pick up the fleece and he would wring it out, and he would get a full bowl full of water from, from the dew that was there. And yet, when he does that, Gideon says, God, that's not what I really meant. God, I'm still not sure. God, I'm still a little afraid of what could happen. So if you're really sure that it's me, at this time, instead of having a, 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 the dry ground and a wet fleece, let's flip it. Let's have a, a, a wet ground and a dry fleece. And then I will know that, that you are really for me, that you are re- really with me, that I, I am who you have called for this job. I will know then. And God again confirms for Gideon that he is with him. You know, this is remarkable and also encouraging because God has definitely seen, God, or Gideon has definitely seen God move. And yet he was still afraid. He was still afraid. After all that God had done for him, God had confirmed two times for him, uh, even prior to this test that Gideon had set out. He'd already confirmed for him that he was with him. And now Gideon has this test and then he, he gets, doesn't like the result he gets. So he set, sets up another test and he gets uh, another confirmation. And yet he's still afraid. That's remarkable to me because we look back at that and we, and we have the perspective of being on this side of it, uh, this side of history of it. And so we can say, well, Gideon, how did you not get this? How did you not understand that God was saying, it's you, buddy? How, how did you not see this? And, but I can tell you, I, I can relate. And I, and I can even tell you that there are times in, in where I've been in churches where I, I see congregation members, church members, where you definitely see God moving in their life. And they're just kind of, I'm not sure about this. And you just kind of want to shake them and go, how do you not see God is moving in this? And, And so it's remarkable to us to think that Gideon would not have gotten this. But it's also encouraging because how often do we find ourselves doubting God? Even though we have a whole lifetime of past experiences to prove to us that God is for us that God is with us, that God loves us. We have a whole lifetime of past experiences to to prove that to us. And yeah, when we were going through whatever difficult times we were going through, we might not have seen God in that moment. We might not have felt God moving. We might have doubted God. But we've we've had enough time, enough uh, distance to be on this side of, of things and go, yeah, I can definitely see where God was orchestrating, where God was moving, where God was putting things into place. I can definitely see where God was for me and not against me. We have a whole lifetime of past experiences, and yet how often when we're in the present do we have doubts and fears about whether or not God is for us or God is with us? You know why this passage is encouraging? Because in the midst of Gideon's doubts, God was patient. God didn't smite Gideon. God didn't say, Gideon, if you don't trust me right now, in this, in this instant, with everything that you have, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be done with you. God didn't say that to Gideon. God was patient with Gideon. God, was, God confirmed a second time. God wanted there to be absolutely no mistake about what he wanted Gideon to do. He wanted his confirmation to be so clear so that Gideon would be able to obey I can't count the number of times that I have doubted uh, God. I can't count that high. And honestly, if I could tell you the number, I'd probably be too ashamed to to admit to that number. But this passage clearly shows us that God is big enough to handle our doubts. One of the things that I would always tell students when I was in student ministry was was that it was okay to have doubts about God. It was okay to have questions and, and fears and doubts about God. You know why? Because God's a big God. He can handle your doubts. He created, Think about it. God created the whole world, and He didn't need anybody's help. He didn't need my help. He didn't need your help when He did all of that. If He can do that, He can handle a little doubt. He can handle our fears and our questions. So it's okay to have questions uh, about God. He's a big God. He can take care of it. He's a big boy. But if you have doubts... If you have some doubts or fears or concerns or questions about God, whether He's for you or with you or, and loves you, well, let me settle them for you right now. Gideon asked for proof, right? He asked for a sign. And God gave him not one sign, but two signs, right? He gave him a wet fleece and a dry fleece. Well, God has given us a sign that can quiet all of our doubts and, and, and all of our fears. And that sign's the cross, The cross is our fleece. The cross is our sign that God loves us, that God is for us, that God is with us. The cross of Christ stands immeasurably greater than any any wet or dry animal skin. The cross of Jesus proves that he loves us, that he's for us, that he is with us. 1 John 4.10 says this is real love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's how we know that God loves us. The cross is is the sign. It's, It's the demonstration that God loves us, that God is for us, that God is with us. But maybe that doesn't completely settle your doubts or it doesn't answer your questions about God's love for you. Maybe you need another sign. Maybe you're like Gideon and you say, God, I'm still not sure. Okay, that's okay because Jesus gives us a second sign. And that's the empty tomb. For Jesus to die for us demonstrates his love for us. But honestly, let's let's be real honest about this. What good is it for is the death of a man that we never met that lived 2,000 years ago if he's still dead? It's not. His death means nothing if he's still dead. But he didn't simply just die. He was raised from the dead. And his promise is that those who will trust him, he's coming back for this little snapshot of Gideon's life here in Judges 6, it should give us great hope that God doesn't see us as we might see ourselves, but sees us for what we can be. And that's His children. And when you obey the Father like good kids do, when you act on what God is calling you to do, people will take notice. And that doesn't mean that we still won't have fears, that we still won't have doubts, that, because we will. Because let's be honest, when God calls us to something, sometimes it's scary. We don't, know, we don't know what's going to happen on the other side. It, it can be scary. But, but in those moments of doubt and fear and reservation, we can look to the cross and to the empty tomb as assurance that God is for us, that God is with us, and more importantly, that God loves us. This morning, I don't know what it is that God is calling you to. But I know that whatever he's calling you, that he is calling you to something. And whatever it is, it, it could cause some trepidation. It could cause some fear. But Paul tells Timothy that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of boldness. So let me encourage you this morning to be bold. To, to take a stand, to be obedient to what it is that God is calling you to do. To be bold in your faith, to move out past what, what it, where you're at now. And to become all that God has called you to be. To do all that God has called you to do. Because He has called us to do something. This morning we're going we're gonna to have a, a moment of invitation. And if you need to step out and you need to answer God's call. then we're going to invite you to do that. Before we do that, let's pray. Father God, we love you. And uh, we ask in this moment that you would, uh, that you would give us boldness. Father, we thank you for the assurance uh, of, of the cross and the tomb that, that assure us of your love for us, that you are for us, that you are with us. And God, we thank you for, for stories in, in the Bible like Gideon's that, that show us that we're not alone in our fears and our doubts, and that you're a big God, that you can handle these. So God, in these next few moments, I just pray that we would, we would trust you completely. That we would step out, of, um, from, step out from the wine press, so to speak, and into the light. And, and that we would be just so, so faithfully compelled to do what it is that you're calling us to do. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you have for our individual lives, that you would, that you would move us in that direction. Father, as a church, that you would continue to move us in a direction that honors you. That looks toward the future. A future that is filled with lots of questions, lots of fears, lots of anxiety. But more important than all that, a future that's filled with you. So Father, would you, would you just uh, give us that spirit of boldness this morning.